0: Welcome to Pioneering Minds. My name is Adam Norris, and each week I'll be sitting down at Macquarie University with a special guest to discuss some of the most interesting, innovative, and improbable aspects of science, art, life, the universe, and everything. Professor Mark Taylor from the Department of Environmental Sciences. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. You are a man of many contaminations, which is a title I never thought I'd get the chance to use. Uh, I have to say I'm, I'm very impressed just by the, the, the scale of your research and the sheer number of things that you're covering. You have looked at a lot of lead contamination across a lot of areas and it's it is somewhat what you are known for, but it's not the focus of your work. Broadly... Environmental contamination seems to be the, the easiest way of explaining what your focus is and what you do. Across land, water, air, but also in the courts, in environmental law, in Australia and abroad. There's really so much we could dive into. But given my own penchant for a, a nice Merlot, I thought <laughs> that could be where we start. Why what- seen Sideways? I, I have seen Sideways and apparently... That throwaway comment about not drinking Merlot... It was disastrous. was
1: genuinely disastrous. I love that movie. It's the most inappropriate <laughs> but the most brilliant movie. And uh, I have been to... What's it called? The, the, the pub... The Hitching oh, Post. Yeah. yeah, I've been to the Hitching <laughs> Post. It was closed when I went, but I've been to the Hitching <laughs> Post. But I think I know what you're going to ask me. You're going to ask me about the red wine study. I, I am. I'm intrigued.
0: What What is red wine telling us about our environment?
1: If we can just backpedal it just a little bit. So... I have to say I'm very grateful to all of my students and my colleagues because they have assisted me and of course only a fool would professor having done all of the things that you've said that I've done on their very own and I've done it with my very able and talented students and colleagues and I like to think that we've been able to do it together some of them they've got the idea some of times I've had the idea we've shared it and worked on it and we've produced some nice and interesting studies and the wine study is one of those studies and my student at the time, now Dr. Louise Christensen, who's at San Diego, University of California, San Diego, she, she'd really drove that study. But we had a conversation in my office at the time about this idea about red wine. And actually, I said to her, well, we could use red wine. It's a surrogate. It's collected if it's not blended the bottles collected at, or the grapes are harvested at a particular time of year, the bottles labeled, we know where it's come from, so we know the vintage, we know the location. We should be able to use that as a proxy for atmospheric mm. pollution. And she looked at me and I told my wife about it. She, my wife said, that's a disgrace. That's not a study. That's just an excuse for getting, <laughs> for getting wine. And actually, I wanted to do a study looking at historic wine, and which obviously added to the challenge of convincing my wife that it was a bona fide study. So we ended up looking at 60 years of wine and can we use that wine as a proxy for environmental contamination from atmospheric sources? Mm.
0: How interesting. It also put me in mind of the Black Books line of the older it is, the gooder it is. (laughs) There's a lot that you have spread your focus across. Something that struck my interest was where I have a vague memory of being a child and being taken to an allergy specialist where... They printed off what felt like a small forest worth of documents of all the things I was allegedly allergic to. And the only thing I remember from uh, from back then was ice cream, which I'm pretty sure my mum just kind That's of... That's a travesty. ...was elbowed in there. One of them, though, which I think most people have to some extent, which does have a genuine trigger in me when it's in uh, large amounts, is dust. You are the primary chief investigator of a project which... Uh, last year received almost half a million dollars in funding from citizen science grant funding and it's called citizen insights to the composition and Risks of household dust Uh, so what can you tell us about the dust safe project should we be terrified of what we're going to find next time we move the couch well
1: we we don't really know what's in our dust uh, in our homes we have some idea but there's never really been an audit or assessment of household dust so I'm interested in contamination and I'm interested in the interaction of people with contaminants and we'd run the Veggie Safe program where we look at people's garden soils. We ran that for free for many years. Now we, we ask people to donate 20 bucks towards that program and they do that uh, but we also thought well wouldn't it be really interesting to look at places where people interact more frequently than gardens and that is inside people's homes and that's Really significant, obviously, for little children who have a smaller body size and they're closer to the ground and often they're putting things in their mouths.
0: More likely to be getting into odd crevices in That's the first right. place. That's right, so they're
1: putting their hands on the floor. And, and as you know, if you've ever vacuumed a carpet and looked in the, the vacuum bag, they're pretty average. The, I mean, they're just dust magnets, these mm-hmm. things. So we're, we're looking at dust as part of that project. People are sending us their vacuum dust and then we're analysing it. So for the community... We're providing information about the metals in the dust. But aside of that, we're taking a subset of those samples and we're analysing them for a whole range of contaminants. So I'm working with colleagues such as Professor Michael Gillings, and he's looking at uh, the DNA in the dust, and he's very interested in looking at antimicrobial resistance genes in household dust. Hmm. So we'll get metals, antimicrobial resistance genes. We've got plans to look at the prevalence of asbestos in dust we'd like to have sufficient samples to stratify the samples according to age so the older the houses or the houses that sort of peak between the 50s and the 70s we anticipate we should see more asbestos in in household dust than the younger and the older homes but we don't know And that's, you know, it's all these unknowns. So hopefully at the end of the study, we'll be able to characterize according to the age of the house, the location, uh, the materials of the house, you know, what's in that dust, what is likely to be in your dust. Mm.
0: Are you anticipating finding differences between, say, your terrace house in Surrey Hills as opposed to a Queenslander? Or will different <laughs> geographic areas present potential I, I, different findings? I think findings? essentially,
1: at least in terms of metal contaminants, we know that lead, for example, is a primary contaminant and it's an anthropogenic contaminant. It's found in urban areas. We expect and, and have already seen that homes in the inner city of Sydney contain much more elevated levels of lead in the dust than homes which are out in the outer fringes in the rural fringes of Sydney. So inner west homes, for example, have uh, more than 300 milligrams per kilogram of lead in the dust in homes, whereas houses out in the outer reaches, it's significantly lower than 100. So, that's an example. So, and we for- already have this template of soil which ma- is which likely to match the dust, but then it depends on the activities in those homes, what people have been doing, what they're bringing in, whether they've just renovated the place, mm. or what's the age of the home. And for the folks playing at home who might not be all that familiar with
0: what this research is or what it is presenting – 300 milligrams. Oh, what, so, what, what does this mean? So
1: there's actually no standards for, for, for dust in people's homes. <clears throat> the nearest standard would be soil, which you would find ob- most people in Australia have got a garden, unless you live in a unit, and even then there's gardens usually outside the units. And the standard for a normal residential home of the lead in soil is 300 parts per million or 300 milligrams per kilogram. So that's a, an approximate benchmark that we can use for, for household dust. And, you know, we see quite a few homes with some of them have been much higher than that and some of them, a vast majority have been above that value, particularly in the older parts of Sydney. Mm. So whether that translates into a risk to human health, that's a completely separate question. And we're at the point at the moment of trying to characterize the exposures from contaminants of concern across homes. Mm. I wanted to touch on popular conceptions
0: of environmental issues and how that's, reflected across corporate or political realms, sometimes I wonder if I just exist in this bubble where we all know that climate change exists, that there is irreversible harm being done to the natural world, and yet you so often read instances where major corporations are still committing some pretty serious crimes. Just yesterday we saw Link Energy, a Queensland energy company, found guilty of five counts of willful and unlawfully causing environmental damage, polluting soil and water through underground burning of coal to create gas. And this isn't the first time a company has been caught doing the environmental dodgy. Is the reason why just simple economics? Is it just feigning ignorance, hoping that they don't get caught, hoping that a problem
1: will take care of itself? Why are we still doing this? it's cheap (laughs) you know we we use the we have and we still do use the environment as a subsidy for our economic activity we still haven't really registered that the environment is us without the environment we have nothing we're not separate to the environment we're driven by this constant need for profit and for growth and the profit and the growth is sustained by what by natural resources. It's sustained by the environment. So we plunder that for this sort of artificial existence, which is economic growth. Now, I'm sound, sound like a communist, which I'm not, but <laughs> there's no balance between those two things. We, we, we are really using these resources at a rate and a, a capacity that the earth cannot absorb. And so... Either accidents happen or people deliberately pollute the environment because it's cheap to do so or they don't want to spend the the shareholders' money on capturing or remediating pollution. And that pollution burden then is shared by the wider population. Mm. Or maybe they're hoping that the solution to pollution is dilution and once it gets beyond the boundary fence, it's it's dispersed. Hmm. It's not a problem. Which is actually... Um, the approach that is used in a lot of polluting industries, who've got stacks, for example, you know they have stack emissions, and then they have some uh, monitoring around the boundary. And by the time it gets to the boundary and a bit further, as long as it reaches a certain standard, it's fine because it's been mixed with the ambient atmosphere. The same thing happens in in streams, etc., as well. That still doesn't sound like much of a solution. It's not a solution. <laughs> well, I mean, there are there are ways to capture emissions. And to take out particulate pollution, there are ways to fully and completely treat water before it gets discharged into the environment. It all costs money, and that mm. money then would attenuate business growth, profit, maybe affect jobs, the viability. So the arguments that people put forward is, well, if you don't have the industry, you know, there's there's going to be no jobs for people. Would be starving or unemployed, and so we're in this constant balance between protecting and providing economic goods Mm. and also uh, providing opportunity uh, for for the population but also providing a safe and clean environment and that's constantly changing because we're constantly realising that the standards that we had five, ten years ago are no longer acceptable because science is telling us that Mm. and I think there will always be pollution it's a matter of how we manage it and how we respond to it so when a company is found to be a willful and persistent polluter you know that's when they are liable to get into serious trouble because they've done it on numerous times whereas if it's a one-off incident and they're remorseful and they do all they can to to, uh, remedy that problem the courts look on that with a bit more uh, compassion because it's not deliberate and purposeful on the other hand there are some companies that have a license to pollute they have permission to emit contaminants to the environment. So can I give you a really good example Yeah, of that? certainly. So uh, we've just been looking at Port Pirie in South Australia, and down in Port Pirie there is a lead and zinc smelter. And we've been looking at this facility for a while. We did some work in uh, 2011, uh, 2012, looking at emissions and depositions in and around Port Pirie. There's a lot of lead, arsenic, zinc, cadmium, um, sulphur dioxide in the atmosphere there. They then have gone on to replace the smelter, spending over half a billion dollars to replace that smelter. And in the interchange period in the years 2015 2016, we saw lead emissions completely spike and 2017 completely spike in the community. We also saw the one hour sulfur dioxide level uh, be exceeded in 2015 and 2016, 119 and 121 times. It is the most polluted place in Australia and the government's even got its own monitoring equipment so they're just, they're they're watching this but they have a licence to pollute because there's no in their licence, so take sulphur dioxide there is no standard or guideline or maximum upper limit in regard to sulphur dioxide emissions to the environment. So sulphur dioxide is associated with children's increased wheeze and respiratory problems and, and along with asthma and it increased by double in those years of 2015 and 2016, and it dropped down a bit in 2017. But they, there's nothing in the licence to stop them. We have national legislation which is not brought, uh, uplifted into the state regulations for managing that facility. So even though we know all of these harms are happening, we just it still happens. So it's something of a, it's a technicality that there
0: is no, there there isn't yet a state legislated cap, and so...
1: Well, there's national guidelines and standards, and they, in order for those, there is no way that they can be legally enforced unless it's written into license arrangements, unless somebody takes on a nuisance claim in a court, and there's never really been a successful toxic talk. But... Places like Mount Isa, they do have guidelines about sulfur dioxide emissions, and some of those are, don't quite meet the national standard, but they're reasonably close. But in Port Pirie, for example, they have a standard for lead for some of the sites, and some of them are just targets, not fixed. You must be less than this value. But there's nothing for sulfur dioxide, and that's just one example. A, I don't really know how in you know the 21st century we, we're we operating business which is sat within and immediately next to communities with sensitive receptors, i.e. children, mm. and where you know, we let them get away with polluting the environment that we know is going to cause harm because this stuff blows across. It blows across the community. And so that's just one example. Yes. And so there are many examples um, that we can think of. Talking of industry and
0: provision of goods and perhaps unintended consequences, there was a plant sale in Sydney over the weekend, and I bought myself a blueberry tree, which I'm quite happy to cultivate and see how that goes. I just happened to read an article on the, the ABC website entitled Blueberry Farm Runoff Linked to High Nitrogen Levels in Banana Coast Waterway. I saw that. The fact we have an area called the Banana Coast notwithstanding. <laughs> the article states, Results of a study linking fertilizer runoff from blueberry farms to excessive nitrogen levels in a local waterway, a quarter of the sites tested at Bucca Bucker Creek north of Coffs Harbour showed that levels were between 50 to 800 times higher than the trigger levels set out in the Australian and New Zealand Environmental Conservation Council's guidelines. This study, which from memory uh, was conducted by Southern Cross University, yep. it's not just blueberry farmers are to blame. There's um, there, are, there are cattle farms nearby that can be contributing as well. But then we did see earlier in the year this tragedy of deaths associated with rock melons, although this wasn't in Australia. We had the hepatitis A pomegranates, though as I understand in the past we have had problems with domestic pomegranates as well. Simply put, what are the implications for our agriculture industry here? Do we need to reshape our entire approach to the production of food?
1: Well, the question is, is is the agriculture industry responding to the demands of the consumer, or is the consumer driving the agricultural industry? And I, I would say it's the consumer demand saying we want these big berries, we want lots of them, we want them frequently. In order to produce those, the farmers then have to, you know, use a whole suite of uh, agrochemicals in order to maximise the production, the tonnage per hectare of land. It's the same thing with um, the production of animals. You know, they're fed hormones or they're fed in cages and, you know, the various other approaches to, to enhance their, their weight gain over the shortest possible time. So that shortens the time period between birth and going to market. I end up in the supermarket. And we as consumers are all part of that process. So we, we contribute to that without realizing it by... Wanting strawberries 24-7, 365 days a year. I I mean, I remember when I was was a lad, (laughs) strawberries only came around sort of when Wimbledon was on. (laughs) And there was a really small window when strawberries were available. I've never seen a month in Australia when there are no strawberries available. Mm. Have you? No, I have not. And so strawberries are a summer fruit. But we get them all year round, they're grown in greenhouses, God knows what they spray on those things, along with all the other fruit and veg that we we get, and some of that stuff escapes. If it's not in a greenhouse, it's out in paddocks, it gets into the groundwater, it gets into the soil, which gets into the groundwater which'll get gets into the streams. Mm. And so our demand as consumers is also contributes to this matrix of issues that you're talking about. You know, we you know, we haven't done it deliberately, but we've said, oh, we want we want the pineapples and we want the big bananas and we want this and we want that and we want it all year.
0: We mm. contribute
1: to it indirectly. So it's a complex problem. It's not that simple. And, of course, the cost for the uh, the, the, the farmer, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever gone past any farms out in northwestern Sydney. It's hard work. It's hard to make anything grow. And it costs us minimum salaries. It's expensive. It's hard work so they want to maximise their yield. You kind of, you sort of, in some ways, you can look at it from that that perspective. And you you can, can understand. You can understand, but again, we need to come to some sort of better agreement about what is the capacity of the land and the streams and the waterways. What should we be exerting on those in terms of chemicals? And that comes back to how should we be using that land and what's our expectation as consumers? Should we just be eating cabbage and Brussels sprouts can't think of anything worse, to be frank, <laughs> all winter. And, you know, those sort of winter veggies are not expecting to be eating salads all year and mm. the sorts of vegetables that we would ordinarily associate with particular seasons. And so that's a com- it's a complex problem. But I think stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, I-, I don't think as a consumer we're really cognizant of the consequences of our consumption, about how did this food get to be here. And when you sort of start to think back about, oh, look at the packaging on the food, the labelling, somebody's had to put it out, and then it was transferred here, and it was put in a fridge, and was it irradiated? And then when we go back to the farm, somebody had to pick it, and before that it was tended to, it may have been some spraying and some watering, and somebody had to seed it. You know, it's a huge, complex Mm. chain. So there's all these sorts of processes that we need to think about, about what's our role. Enforcing the producer to produce cheaper food, because we always demand cheaper food, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, at cheaper. It's, the lettuces are too expensive at 2 bucks 50 hmm. But there's a consequence to that. And the farmers will take a shortcut or they will use the means that that is within their reach to produce the food, to produce the biggest mass of food per hectare at the lowest possible price, because that increases their yield. Hmm. So... It's a, it's a quite a complex problem. Now, the good news is nearly 50% of Australians produce food, some sort of food, in their own backyards. And that might just be herbs or it might be you know, rosemary, for example, or it could be lettuces and rocket or some blueberries, as you're talking about, or they could keep chucks. But so the interest and growth in urban agriculture and producing some food is growing. And everybody knows that if they're producing food in their own, you know, they know where it's come from, they know what's gone into it. Mm. And I think that's a really useful, it's a useful pathway for us to understand food production and difficulties.
0: I did want to touch on a large and rather significant contamination event to get your perspective, given that one of my my favourite authors, William Volman, just released uh, his first volume in a series called Carbon ideologies this one's called no immediate danger about the causes and effects of climate change and i've yet to read it but its focus is on energy extraction and creation and particularly nuclear and one of his observations comes from multiple visits over to the fukushima quarantine zone where groundwater is seeping into the basements of the reactors becoming contaminated and then making its way to the sea seven years after the explosions he writes Tonne after tonne of radioactive water is still spewing into the ocean. I mean, this is severe damage in a very particular set of circumstances. How do we begin addressing this kind of event?
1: This is some long-term damage. Thousands of years. Good luck. (laughs) Um, It's just an... It's just an you know, inconceivably difficult problem to solve, especially when you've got groundwater seeping in and coming out. It's much easier when you can encase a problem like that, fully in concrete, fully seal it, but that's not the case. It's just going to be off limits for a long, long, long time. Mm. You won't want to be eating the food out of there. You won't want to be visiting it. The people from Fukushima won't be going back. It's it's a horrible problem. It's, it's just an unresolvable problem. In generations
0: mm. It is it, it seems like such a, a, a grim Issue over there as well Within Australia Are we able to identify What our biggest pollution or contamination Issue is Do we have a, an ignoble number one
1: Well I think, I think Our biggest problem is probably Carbon emissions and our contribution To climate change And You, you know yesterday was the hottest day on record mm. In April Uh, we're watering trees at home so we don't lose the trees it's a very serious problem i don't think people have fully grasped how serious the climate problem is going to be Mm. and i think that has a whole raft of other consequences we're aware of which has nothing to do with particularly my research but it is all pollution and you know the damage that we've done and we will do to the great barrier reef it's hard to see how that's going to last it's you know it's actually quite quite depressing when you think about it, but the, the the thing I would say about humans is that we're really adept, we're very able to respond to problems, we, we're very elastic in that way, and we've come in and out of all sorts of global issues in the past. We have the plague, for example, we have Spanish flu, we've had world wars, we've still got some horrendous wars, and we have this amazing capacity to recover, regenerate, and innovate, and get ourselves out of these problems, and I don't see that remitting, I only see that growing our capacity to be innovators and respond to the problem, so it's, in many ways, that's what really characterises humanity, that it's this, this elasticity to sort of solve a problem. So... We may lose the barrier reef as we see it now, for example, from this, I think, what is our biggest issue, which is the pollution that we're contributing to the global climate. But we may innovate and find a way to, and there have been discussions about this, migrate parts of the reef further south where the waters are cool so it can survive. But we know the climate thing is going to go on for generations because there's so much built in now in terms of the rise of the temperature. It, we, we can't stop it. It's got its own momentum. Should we be – I
0: don't want us to be alarmist here, but, sh- I mean, should there be a level of fright? There was that Volman book I, I mentioned. He was interviewed about it, and somebody asked him, oh, you know, you've got this book out about climate change. Is there anything in there that can help remedy the damage? And he said, <laughs> it's wonderfully grim, it's too late. Hopefully you and I will be safely dead before things get to be too bad. All I can say is I
1: did my best.
0: (laughs) I was like, well, that's pretty dire. Should we be afraid?
1: I think as an educator and as a parent, our responsibility is to make sure the next generation don't make the same mistakes that we made, that they learn from our mistakes and while they may not thank us for the stuff-ups that we've made, we have done some good things. And it's about providing them with the skills in order to survive that next that next phase when it changes. I mean, the globe's constantly changing, irrespective of climate change. We've got shifting continental plates. We do have natural fluctuations in climate. We had the Little Ice Age. Um, we had the medieval warming period, you know, going all the way back. I mean, humans are two million years old or so, and we've gone through you know, several climate cycles or, or major shifts. So the capacity to survive is clearly there. And that's I think, is the important lesson to remember. You know, it's very hard to think beyond your own lifetime. But you've got kids or you've got relatives who've got kids. You can pass something on about, well, this is what we've done. It probably wasn't the best, but here's some ways or here's some education or here's some ways of laterally thinking around the problem to produce a solution. And your alternative ways forward, you know educating our children that way that's probably the best gift that we can give, mm. obviously coupled along with thinking about our own activities, but it's a really difficult equation, but I think we are probably we're at the point of we're past the point of return, and we we have this we have an inbuilt warming ahead of us. I think it's how we respond is the most important thing. there will be change there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers but let's be positive about it the human race is incredibly smart and it's incredibly stupid as well because we've got (laughs) ourselves into this hole but this kind of happened in many ways by accident you know we didn't actually realize we'd burnt a lot of this energy before we'd realized what we'd done unfortunately when we realized we've been too slow to respond because too many people have a vested interest in the status quo having said all of that we're really you know we are smart we I think we have got the capacity and we as long as we pass that on to the next generation, I think that's the best we can do. Otherwise we might as well all go down to the gap and march ourselves off one by one. And that's <laughs> not gonna happen, is it? No, it's not gonna happen. So what's our plan B? Indeed. We have a have to have a plan B. Well, I think that
0: is I think there is a lot of reassurance and, and optimism in there as well. Uh we are out of time but Professor Mark Taylor, thank you very much for taking the time to give us a little bit of an insight into what you're doing, and hopefully we'll talk again down the line about some of your other interests as well.
1: No, thank you. Next time, bring some red wine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Done.